As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This cannot be real. This cannot be like a private commerce transaction would be liable for this. Like, yeah. how does the government get out of all liability when they're the ones that broke the freaking thing? Hello, and welcome to Financials Podcast, Future Rich. My name is Barbara Ginty, and I'm your host and also a CFP, which is a certified financial planner. And I am here with my expert guest today, Ryan. Hi, Ryan. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. So you are a real estate investor. You also are the host of Income Hacker, the podcast. I am. Um, yeah. And we met Gosh, was it two, is it two years ago? Well, with COVID, it's like... <laughs> you like, didn't count. It's like, yeah. we skipped forward. So we met back in FinCon, I guess in 2019, uh, before, you know, the world came to a full stop. Um, but so I know a little bit about your background, but would you like to fill in our listeners about your background? So I grew up and my, my grandfather was an HVAC contractor. My father was a, was a chiropractor, um, but both of them rental properties was a big thing. So my grandfather would buy a property, fix it up, uh, move into it, uh, sell it a little later, maybe buy another one. My, my dad, when I was growing up, would buy plexes, duplexes, threeplexes, fourplexes. I spent the summers working on those. And so I, um, you know, I, I knew real estate was a place to be. So I got in uh, being a real estate agent, helping other people uh, buy and sell properties. I started buying rental properties on my own. Um, I started uh, doing my own fix and flips on properties. And then I got into doing uh, lending and we do some education and some software and some lending is kind of where we're at now. Wow. And I listened to a couple of your podcasts. And so one of them, you actually started your first business in high school doing carpet I did. <laughs> I did. Yeah. So one of the big ski resorts out here too. Yeah. Yeah. So Brighton Ski Resort was a customer of mine. Um, Franklin Covey was a customer of mine back when he had the Franklin Day planners and that stuff. So I did some of their places. So yeah, I was really lucky. My um, my mom and dad kind of fueled the fire of that. We're like, just go do it. Go, go, go try things. The carpet cleaning really started because my dad was cleaning his carpets at his office every single month. And he's like, I'll pay for the machine. Um, and you can, well, I'll loan you the money to buy the machine. You pay it off with some interest and then you can use it for other things. And that kind of grew, uh, grew from there. Yeah, that's impressive. So you started in that business, sold, sold that, right? I did. Yep. I sold that to another carpet cleaner and started a mat business where we did mats and matting. 
And okay. so it was kind of in the same sector, okay. um, but we would do big floor mats. Um, and so like uh, a ski resort or an apartment complex, we'd put down mats or even just like when you go to the grocery store and it has a logo in it. And so we'd put one down and we'd take it back to get clean and okay. put the new one down. And so we're rotating uh, custom designed uh, mats and matting uh, was, a, was a big thing. Then I ended up selling that business a few years later as well. And then you went into real estate full time. Then I went into real estate. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That, that was my that was my call or my high school experience was those businesses. Then I decided I had to grow up. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so you got into real estate primarily because you saw your. It sounds like your grandfather was like well ahead of his time with the house hacking, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, he's the original house hacker. <laughs> you know, uh, but not just that. It was just. Um, they, they really just had the vision, like real estate always goes up over time. You know, it's just like real estate's going to go up over the, the long term. Um, there's a saying in my family, there's only so much land, right? Yeah. There, you can't make any more of it. Um, and so there's only so much land. And so that was kind of a, a core philosophy that, uh, that I believed in. And so how old were you when you first got into real estate, when you transitioned out of those other... Yeah. Other so you started so young, you have so much experience and your <laughs> business starts in high school. Yeah. Yeah. I was really lucky in high school to uh, get work release for uh, two classes. So the afternoons I was able to work on my business and there was a great mentor um, and I am forgetting her name, but she worked at the school and she was in charge of this program and her husband was an entrepreneur and they really, uh, her, his name was Dwayne and I, yeah, I cannot remember. I can't, her so name they anymore. let you leave school early to work yeah, on your businesses. They did. That's impressive. Mm -hmm. I don't with really with oversight. So she yeah. had to she had to Marge. It was Marge and Dwayne. And uh, her husband was an entrepreneur and she was kind of over this little program um, as a counselor and would check up on me and those things. So that was really cool. But to answer the question you were asking, I was 21 years old uh, when I bought my first duplex. Okay. Um, and that's when I was going to real estate school as well. So I graduated from real estate school somewhere when I was 21 years old. So, okay. And so you started with the duplex and now where are you? So that's where you started. And then where are you today? Cause I feel I think you told me how many properties. Yeah. So I've got, I'd have to ask my wife, but I think we've got, we've got 13 or 15, 13, 14 single family homes. I can't remember. We've got, uh, two commercial properties. Um, and then we do a bunch of lending. So I own notes uh, across the country as well. So maybe you could explain the lending aspect to our listeners. Yeah. I feel like that's a, a topic that we don't talk about that often. For sure. So one of the really cool things I started, so it, it's kind of my evolution. So I started out, I didn't know how to get into real estate. I'd watch my, my grandpa, I've watched my dad, you know, kind of buy these plexes, but I knew that there was a way to make that happen faster, but mm -hmm. I just didn't know what it was. And so I, like most people thought, well, if I become a real estate agent, I'll get like this secret to finding these amazing properties. And so I went to real estate school and then I'm like, uh, that didn't really help me. Um, and that's one of the misconceptions, like real estate school gave me a license to sell real estate for other people, but it didn't help me um, really become a big real estate investor. Um, and so one of the things that, that I learned along that journey was how to find properties and value properties and some of those things. And some of the skill sets translate, but a lot of them don't um, as far as being a, being a real estate agent. Uh, but as far as notes, um, along the way, when I started out as an agent, then I helped other people buy and sell, other people buying sell properties. Then I helped other people invest in properties, do fix and flips, and I was their agent. Then I did fix and flips. And then I got to the point where I was borrowing money so much, I said, you know, I should figure out a way to become the lender. 
So the so idea you had all parts of it. So you, you could do beginning to end and cut out all the middlemen, right? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And then I started lending for other people as well. Um, and so this whole concept of lending is looking at it from a financial investor standpoint, like, hey, I want to get into the note business. The whole concept with this is um, you're putting up some capital for someone else to make an acquisition on a property, purchase a property, and then in return, you're getting some sort of an interest rate um, for making that loan happen. And so the game with that is getting a lower loan to value. So you feel like you're in a good security position. Um, there's a couple of ways to buy notes. You can buy notes to high credit borrowers that have good credit and good assets and good incomes, but the loan to value is going to be really high, or you can do and not as good borrowers. Just to explain loan to value. That yes, yes, yes. The percentage that you're borrowing versus the value of the house. That's exactly right. So if the property's worth $100,000 and I'm loaning $70,000, I'm at a 70% loan to value ratio. And, and think of that as like, helping it insulates you from risk mm -hmm. i think is the lower that loan to value is if it's at 50 percent or 30 percent the lower it is the less risk um that you're you're more than likely taking on there's no guarantees in life but right. um the, it's insulating you more and more from risk and that happens either through the borrower finding a great deal or putting a lot of money down to insulate that and that's because you can take the real asset back if they fail on the loan Right. And that's the whole thing of, of hard money, right? A hard money loan is lending on the asset, not based upon the individual. So you've got your banks and credit unions and those yeah. things, and they're really, they're lending based upon the person, not really the property. They'll go like 97% yeah. of the repair of the value of the property, but they're making sure you've got great jobs. You've been there for two years and you've got everything, uh, your ducks your are in a row, tax yeah. document. Yeah. yeah. And you, you've got uh, good returns, your debt to income ratios, right? Your credit scores yeah. are good. Um, so that's on this end of the spectrum. Then there's this other end of the spectrum, which is called hard money. And the hard money is we don't really care about you. Well, we care about you, but we don't care about your income, your yeah. credit, those types of things. We really care about the asset. So you've got the, the conventional lenders at 97%. You've got the hard money lenders at like 70% of the loan to value saying, if there's a problem, we'll take the property back. We'll sell it, make our money back. And that's going to be our security. So it's interesting. So you recognize an opportunity to go and take over the whole, you know, all the steps. So from the beginning, you could even sell, if you wanted to sell it, you could represent yourself because you're a real estate agent. Yep. So you cut out and so you were able to make a profit on all aspects of it. For, for sure. And that wasn't like by design, right? Yeah. I stumbled into it. You know, I started as an agent. I started as an investor. I bought my first duplex before I was an agent yeah. and I become the agent. So it was just kind of stumbled upon it. You don't need to go to real estate school to invest in notes or real estate school to be an investor. Um, I don't know if I do that again or not. Um, it was great. I learned like that was my path, right? Yeah. Um, but everybody's path doesn't have to go that same way. You can be an investor without being a real estate agent. Um, you can buy notes without being a fix and flipper or a real estate agent. And some people prefer notes over owning properties. I like to own properties. I think uh, it's a big deal. But other people say, I don't want to deal with any hassles. I'd much rather just own a note. Um, you still have you still have hassles with notes as well, depending upon what type of note. Um, but there are very you know low risk notes that have quite a bit of lower hassle uh, that you can invest in as well. Um, they can be really beneficial to investors if if that's the what they are going after. And who do you think would be an ideal candidate for like doing the lending versus the investing in real estate? And then 
I do have a question about like how, for the people listening, how do, if they want to get into the real estate game, like what would be your advice? Yeah. So let's talk about the <clears throat> becoming a lender versus being a real estate investor. So um, to be a lender, in most cases, if you're dealing with hard money, um, you're going to want to be an accredited investor, meaning okay. you're going to want to have that net worth of a million dollars plus or the income of 300000 for the last few years. I can't remember all that, that, that accredited. Yeah, you're going to want to make sure you have that. Yeah, usually over a million net worth and somewhere between like two and 300000 depending on like single annual filing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you're going to want to make sure you have that. And the reason is when you're dealing with some of the hard money loans, you are going to take properties back. You are going to have some risk. Yeah. There's going to be some remodeling to the property that causes some problems that cost more money. And you're going to have some deals that go bad. And you've got to be able to stomach that both, um, both in your psyche and financially, some of those ups and downs. Um, because if you can't get past a bad deal to get onto the next good deal, you're going to get yourself in trouble really quickly. You've got to realize that's part of the investment is they're not all going to be perfect and you're going to have some home runs and you're going to have some losers, but yeah. overall you're going to end up in a better scenario. So that's something you've got to do. If you can't stomach that, then you need to look at more some conventional. So there's a lot of uh, longer term type loans that you can buy, um, potentially even at a discount at a 7% rate or an 8% rate where you just buy a note. It's a homeowner note. Um, they live in the home, the bank's liquidating it, or it was a private transaction and they just want to sell it and get out of it. Um, and then you can actually just buy those on the open market, or there's even companies where you can just put your money into a pool yep. and that pool goes out and buys notes. And then you just own a certain percentage of that pool. So that's kind of the differences there that you should look okay. at. As far as who should do the notes, I think if you have cash and you want your money to work for you, mm -hmm. buying notes is a great option. Okay. If you don't have a lot of cash, buying real estate is a great option. So Okay. There's these aspects of like wholesaling properties where you don't have to have any money and you find a deal and sell the deal to somebody else simultaneously. Then you've got like fix and flipping where hard money lenders don't really care about some of the credit and some of those things, but you've got to put a lot of time in. So I think it's time versus money. Um, yeah. And except for the only exception to that is going to be rental properties. Okay. Um, and I really think people should be buying rental properties along the way. Um, it's a great investment. So I think everyone should be doing that. Yeah, so I was just going to say, probably a lot of our listeners probably have, not all, but have time versus, you know, being a credit investor. So you think going into like house hacking and rental properties is the way to go for them? I think if you've got more time than you have money, uh, the number one thing that you need to do, and you want to get into the real estate game, um, I think the number one thing you've got to do is get good at finding undervalued properties. Okay. And when I say that, a lot of people think like, oh, you've just got to like go strong arm and negotiate people. And, and that's actually not the case. Um, what you want to do is it's opportunistic. You want to find an opportunity when it makes sense. I'll, I'll give you a great example. Okay. I, had, um, I had somebody that approached me, their grandfather or their dad, I'm sorry, um, it needed to move into a rest home and uh, the grandma had passed away. Um, grandpa needs to move into a rest home and the property was just in horrible condition, but rest homes are really expensive. It was like $8,000 a month and they didn't have the $8,000 a month. Right, and, and that's after tax, $8,000. Yeah, yeah, after tax, $8,000 a month. Yeah. And the home was in horrible condition. Grandpa had held it together with bailing wire. There was crap everywhere. There was stuff. I mean, this whole thing. And so they had a choice. They had to either get all of his stuff out of there. They had to fix the property up and then be able to sell the property on the open market because 
banks like fan, uh, like uh, Chase Bank or Bank of America or those things, they won't lend on a property that's not inhabitable. If you can't move into it right away, they won't lend on it. Right. So then uh, the family has this awkward decision like, well, what do we do? Do we go dump $100,000 into this house to get it inhabitable? Um, grandpa was living there, but he didn't care about the mice and you know all the other stuff. It was in a horrible condition, right? Oh my so God. then it's like, do we dump this money into it? Well, wait a minute. The family doesn't have the money. They need the money to put grandpa into a rest home. Okay, so what do we do? So they approached me and I just said, guess what, guys? I'll buy the property. Um, he had a little bit of a loan on it, but they got a significant amount of money out of the property. I bought it as is. Um, also with the personal belongings, and this is a major problem for a lot of people, I said to them, you know what? Just take what you want and leave everything else. So whatever's of value, whatever is, means something to you emotionally or reminds you of grandpa, take it out, take all that out. But all the other stuff, just leave it and I'll take care of it. And for a family that's going through a traumatic experience like that, that's huge. Then I said, and I'll close in two weeks. You know, so you'll have the money. money. So they're like, hey, we'll put grandpa in the rest home. We got enough money for the first bill, but we can't cover the second. Uh, We'll get all the stuff we want out of the house, all the garbage, the junk, the dressers, you know, all the stuff that nobody wants. Ryan will take care of that. And I did that, but I got a little bit of a discount on the property. Then I fixed the property up and I sell that property off or I wholesale it. And so when you ask like, how does somebody that has more time than money get involved? You get really good at finding deals like that. Um, and there's some software and there's some other ways to do that, but that's what you've got to do. You've got to become really good at finding under, under market deals um, where you can help people. And frankly, I was able to bless those guys' lives. They're so happy I bought the house because um, I was able to help sell, solve a problem. Right, exactly. They, they, and probably if they weren't able to get the house in shape to sell it, they were probably going to have a lien put against it anyway from the nursing home. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, for not being able to pay that bill. Yeah, if they weren't able to pay the bill. So I know I listened to one one of your episodes and you talk about on the podcast uh, ways to get to financial freedom, which I think is such, I don't want to call it like a hip topic now, but everyone <laughs> wants to get out of their nine to five job. You know, sure. most, most people want to have that flexibility and that freedom to have control over their life. And you talk about on the podcast, being able to do it in under 10 years with using real estate. Um, so maybe we could chat a little bit about that. So that would be more of like with the rental properties, right? Doing that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it's a progression, right? You start out with wholesaling, then you start fixing flipping and start buying rentals. That's kind of the plan with that. But let's just step back a a couple of steps. There's, There's kind of two ways to this financial freedom, right? And I think you've got to think about both. Um, The first one is how much do you spend? Uh, Because if you only need, if you can live off a thousand bucks, um, you know, a month, it's not going to take a whole lot of cash flow to get there. But if you need $20,000 a month, it's going to take a whole lot of cash flow. Yep. And, and I don't think a lot of people step back and just be like, how, they, I think people just get used to spending, 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 and they yeah. don't get used to like, what really means something to me. And that's kind of the first step for me, for, for most people is saying like, what really matters? Like, forget the Joneses, forget the neighbors. Like, what is important to you? Is travel important? Is your family important? Is your, you know, is a nice car important? Is a, you know, a nice house important? Because if you want to have it all, it's going to take a whole lot of time to reach financial freedom. But if you can decide like what's important, what's not important in life to you, as far as it comes around your financing, and then decide 
what do I need to really spend? And so that's kind of the first thing is getting a reality check as to what you really want to, to feel good about life and those things. It's really easy to be like, oh, I want a private jet. I want a boat. I want all this crazy stuff. And it's like, do you know how much that really costs? You know, but if you get real about like what's meaningful to you and then start putting some price tags around what that looks like, and then you can say, how much cash flow do I really need? Right. Um, you know, what do I really need? Yeah, yeah. And then from yeah. there, then you put the plan together on how to go get it. Because you used a really good example, and I feel like I tell people a lot, but you use an example with your going out for a date night with your wife. You're like, we could go to the park and spend $0 and still reconnect and have a great time. And so it's all about those priorities. So what's your priority? Financial freedom or, you know, being able to not have, because I think I see a lot, and I'm sure you do too, but people just spend, I don't want to say carelessly, but they don't really allocate their money to where they want it to go. And at the end of the month, they're like, well, but I have nothing. And it's like, we looked back on your month, you probably didn't need to, you know, buy coffee out or take Ubers everywhere. You probably could have taken the subway or you could have walked or whatever it might be. Yeah, or go out to eat every single meal of the day or, right. you know, whatever the case is. But yeah. yeah, I think it comes down to what's your priority. What what do you want to do? And and granted, I'm not the guy that's like, you know, never go out to dinner, um, but I want to be conscious of going out to dinner. And that's what I would say um, for the spending. I think a lot of people are unconsciously spending um, rather than consciously spending, which basically means these things are deliberate excuse me, these things are important to me and I'm going to put my money towards that. So I think conscious versus unconscious spending is, is really important. And I think getting real with that. And if you are married, which I'm glad you brought up, you know, we're celebrating our 21st year of marriage here in August with my oh, wife. Congrats. Um, thank you. Yeah. You've just, you've got to get on the same page. Yep. And I know that finance and those things are like, people are raised differently. Some people are really, you know, invest heavy. Some people are spend heavy. Very few people find the dance that I call it the middle ground of like, how do we, how do we make the blend these two together? Um, but I think one of the most important topics and they I know there's a bunch of studies of divorces or led to finances and that type of yeah. stuff. There's, there's hundreds of them. Um, but getting on the same page with that. And, and I start with that, like you want to become financial free, You've got, to get, you've got to figure out what's going to feel good for you and what you want to spend um, mm -hmm. that's within reason. And you've got to get on the same page with your, your spouse or your significant other um, or your life partner, whatever it is. You've got to get on the same page with that. Um, and then we can start building the plan of how do we actually get the cash flow. And then you think the, the first way to start. So if someone was listening to this and says, okay, I'm going to commit to being on a budget. I know what I you know, need monthly to live on. What would be the first intro from them, for them for the real estate? Yeah, on the investing side, if you're talking real estate specifically, um, and you may have to take a step before the real estate, which you may need to get some type of a gig job. You might need to drive for Uber. You yeah. might need to do something. You might need to find a gig to help earn you some money because some of the real estate investings are going to cost you some money. I think if you want to be a real estate investor, the minimum is going to be around $5,000 you're going to need to get started. Okay. So if you don't have some seed capital to get started, you're going to need some software. You're going to need to, to buy some postcards or you're going to need to buy a list or, you know, there's a few things you're going to need. If you don't have five grand, one, you need to have a little bit of an emergency fund personally. Yeah. And two, you need to save up a little bit of money to become a real estate investor. So I would say get a side gig, get a side job, um, you know, mow some lawns on the weekend, drive for Uber, whatever the case is, get to the point where you have $5,000. But if you have that $5,000, the next step is going to be, I would say, wholesaling properties. Okay. And what do you mean by wholesaling properties? Great question. Uh, the art of wholesaling a property is finding a good deal, putting it under contract, and selling that contract to someone else. Okay. 
so meaning I go find a property. So think about stock options. Yeah. Um, if your listeners are kind of, you know, so I've got the option, you know, I can sell it, I can buy it. It's kind of a stock option. Yeah, a contract, a wholesaling is kind of like a stock option as well. I go out and find a seller. Like, let's say I found that grandpa that I talked about. And let's say I put that property under for a, under contract for $150,000. Okay. I could then go find a buyer that is a cash buyer in the area that's buying rental properties for cash with his own money. And okay. I could make a list of those guys. And then I could call all of those guys and say, I have another house that's in the same zip code as one you just bought. Are you interested in buying another one? And he says, yes, I am. And I could say, you know what? I'll sell it to you for $170,000. And he could go to the property and be like, sure, I'll take it. And I make $20,000 just right like that and I don't have to fix the property up, deal with anything. Mm -hmm. I found a good deal. I sold it to somebody else. Now, I may have made $50,000 fixing up the property, but instead I'd take $20,000, but I don't have the risks. I don't have the time. I don't have to manage it, you know, those types of things. So there's a trade-off there. So the first thing I would do is wholesaling. And there, depending on what states, there's certain laws on how you can do a wholesale in different states. Um, I think that's, you know, beyond the podcast here, but um, there's different ways to do that. But that's basically the art of wholesaling, finding a good deal, selling that good deal and getting out of it quickly um, is, is a great way to get started. And then that would enable you to have the cash to maybe move to the next stage. That would enable you to start doing fix and flips. And you can do fix and flips without, without that, um, but you may want to do a few because with a fix and flip, it's got to be a really, really good deal to get a hard money lender to pick that deal up without having to put money into it. Um, we do those deals and I see them, but they're not like every day. Um, they're things that you you want to make sure that you've got a couple. If you have some money, it's going to make it easier. Okay. Now, that money doesn't have to be yours. It could be family members. It could be friends. It could be, you know, there's lots of ways to come up with that money. And then you can start fix and flipping. And the fix and flipping, you're going to make bigger profit margins on that. And then from there, you can start buying rental properties. So you can save that cash up. You can either leverage to buy rental properties okay. or you can pay cash for rental properties. Leverage meaning I can put 20% down on each property and I can buy multiple rental properties properties, or I can save all of my money and pay it off and pay cash for properties. Um, so I've got those two options. So curious why you would start with um, the fix and flip versus the rental. Yeah. So great question. You can also jump right to doing rentals and okay. doing burr type deals. Um, a burr type deal is buying it, renovating it, renting it and refinancing that. So you can use hard money to give you the money to buy and to renovate. And then what you can do is rent it and then you refinance out of that. Okay. And the big advantage to that is going to be tax advantage, right? So rather than me cashing out, paying the taxes and then investing that money, I could go directly. And I would say it just depends on it depends on where you're located, the price of properties, the price of rents. It also depends on your own financial situation. Do you have some debts you need to get out of, which a lot of people do. And so fix and flipping to pay off those debts automatically creates cash flow because I have less of a payment. So lots of people need to go to that, or you can just do the Burr strategy and go right to the rental properties. So um, any real estate mishaps that you've had? Because I feel, <laughs> I, I'm just curious because I, so I have two rental properties um, I did not, I, that's why I was curious. I did not go straight to fix and flip. I just got two. Yeah. So I just started with a rental property. I bought it for my business offices in one unit rental in the other. Then I bought a property out in Utah with a unit, my, my primary, then with another unit attached. Cause I like, I think it's really important to, uh, 
negate or reduce housing expense. When you're mm -hmm. looking at people's budgets, I find that it's one of the largest overspends for people. And I found that especially when, first of all, with my clients, most of the very successful clients were some aspect of their portfolio or their net worth was in real estate. And then also a lot of them never overspent on housing or on rent for a business. That was like, so I, I so I was curious that's with the difference because I started with the, the rental properties, but I would love to hear what, you know, one of the, how you handle the mishaps because I just went through one, um, a big one. I think people were probably shocked. I mentioned it in another podcast, but I had to do a sewage line fix and it ran a little bit over 25,000. Where was it? It was in upstate New York. Okay. During COVID, during a pavement short, you know, there was no blacktop. It had yeah. to be, blacktop had to be shipped in from New Jersey. I had to pay for a temporary blacktop patch. And the sewage line, it was where the connection is. So it was still my liability. And it was, I think, well over 15 feet below ground. So we had to have a full-on construction crew because you have to, all things I never wanted to know. Totally. Sure shore up the walls so it doesn't fall in so it doesn't fall in so somebody yep. safely can go down so the plumber actually was the cheapest part of this whole thing it totally was the excavation excavation and you ha you can't just have one guy doing it like it's in the city so you have to get permits it has to be done the right way the, the street has to be shut down it was shut down for two days such a mess <laughs> it was it was such a mess um, i had another real estate person on the podcast and he does real estate from afar and i was just like how do you deal with this how would you deal with this and he was like i would have just hired people and i was like well you know when you're spending almost thirty thousand dollars i want to like make sure it's right and i wasn't sure whose liability it was going to be that was the one issue i wanted to make sure that it was my liability? Yeah, great question. Yeah, I mean, that that is a mishap. I will say for all the <laughs> listeners, that's pretty rare. Um, I've replaced I have bad, a lot of- I have bad luck with real estate. <laughs> <laughs> I've replaced a lot of sewage lines. I've replaced a lot of water lines. Um, an average water line for me is like 5,000, maybe $10,000, but those don't happen a lot. I will give you a pro tip though. I just okay. found this out in my area um, and, and the, the water company will actually give you insurance. So for $5 a month, I can get insurance on it where if there is a problem, they'll come out and fix it for me. Um, and so I just, I just did sign up for that and a few other properties. It didn't cover all of my properties, but if you call the water company, um, they were the ones I think that was offering that. My wife's the one that found it, okay. um, but a little pro tip. So there is insurance you can buy for that. I will warn you against like um, uh, insurance on, uh, um, home insurance. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, not like homeowners, the uh, home warranties, home yeah. warranties. Yeah, home warranties are great, but you got to realize there's a million exclusions on home warranties. And something like this, um, like you went through, Barbara, is definitely going to be an exclusion. Yeah, I, mean, I, I was going to say, policy, so for but I know it is. For everyone listening, I have multiple insurance policies. I have a so many insurance policies. Yep. It was covered under nothing. Yep. No not nothing. hazard insurance. Hazard insurance, if the house burns down, they'll cover that. Yeah. But this is regular maintenance or wear and tear is what yes. this is going to be considered. So, um, but yeah, housing mishaps, like we're dealing with repairs all the time. And to, to go back to your point of why not go back to rental properties directly, I would say that is one of the advantages of going through fix and flips is you get to learn the skill set of 
working with contractors, working with prices, understand how houses work. Um, one of the things I recommend for anybody getting into real estate is hire a home inspector, but go there when the home inspector is doing the home inspection so you can follow them around and understand what the HVAC unit is and where the shutoffs are and where the gas shutoff is and where the breaker box is and how the systems of a house work and you know that type of stuff because that becomes invaluable. It's really nice when a tenant calls you and is like, I have a problem with this. Um, and you're like, okay, I know what that is. This yeah. is who we need. Or even better, they call your handyman so you never have to deal with it. <laughs> but you need to make sure you don't get overbilled from your handyman and know and not get taken advantage of. Um, Barbara, you've maybe experienced this, but my wife always gets frustrated with handymen or contractors that may be males thinking they're going to railroad her. And she's like, I know my prices, buddy. Like this, you're not going to oversell me. This is, this is what it should cost and I'm not paying a dime more. Um, so that may be something you have to come and take into the equation as well. Yeah. It shouldn't be happening in this day and age, but oh, yeah. yeah. Oftentimes my dad will say to me, like, I hate to say this, but I feel like I should be there with you or your boyfriend <laughs> should be there with you because that's not a price that somebody would give me. And I'm like, oh. Yeah. Well, and I find if you know what you're talking about, so I, uh, yeah, yeah. it shouldn't be happening in this day and age, no question. But at the end, it's just a sales pitch. That's yeah. just all it is. And I wouldn't take it personally as being a female, like they're going to sell, they don't just uh, go after females. They go after anybody that doesn't know prices. If you right. don't know prices, male, female, it doesn't matter. Um, they're they're going to go after that because they're salesmen and they're doing the same thing. What's the most I can sell this for? Um, so I think the construction experience helps with that. Um, knowing what that looks like. And you can get that through doing some of the rehabs. As far as mishaps, I think the biggest mishap that I made was buying a property emotionally. Um, most properties I don't buy emotionally, but uh, my wife and I, we, we bought a duplex. Um, we moved into it when we first got married, turned it into a threeplex. Um, we got tired of living next door to the tenants and that type of stuff. So then we bought another property. Um, and then we, we, we were doing well. And we had this area of town we wanted to move into, but it was just the two of us. We lived in a 1200 square foot house. And so we went looking for our dream house and we bought this 6,000 square foot house um, right about 2006, um, 2007. I don't think you could have possibly paid more for a property ever anywhere. Um, and so we overpaid, but then it gets even worse because we bought on emotion. We said, well, we want to do the responsible thing. We don't need this big of a house. This is for our future family and everything else. So then we decided to put renters into the property. And the renters in the property wouldn't even cover the mortgage because at the higher price you go in real estate, the, the rents aren't proportionate, right? So yeah. there's this there's a sweet spot where the rents and the payment ratio make a lot of sense. And so we were eating about $500 a month, which was fine because that was kind of part of our plan. But then what happened is 2008, the real estate correction happened. It crashed. Values went down. So now rents went down even further. So now I'm feeding this thing like a thousand dollars a month. And so we ended up uh, feeding this, I don't know, 800 or a thousand dollars a month for six months or eight months. And um, because I didn't want to take a loss. And so in the end, I ended up taking a hundred thousand dollar loss on that property. Um, which is really interesting because I think the biggest loss I've ever taken on an investment was I don't know, $10,000, maybe, maybe $20,000. Um, and that doesn't happen frequently. If you do things right and everything else, you don't deal with that a lot, but it is investing and there is risk and investors get paid to take on risk. Um, and we try and mitigate that risk as much as possible, but I end up losing out. I want to say, I think it was close to a hundred thousand dollars on that property, never lived in it. <laughs> 
because <laughs> uh, we ended up buying another property on the other side of town and felt like that's where we need to move and all this stuff. So I'm kind of a planner and I think I planned way too far and ahead and too many yeah. steps. But I want to go back to your, your whole thing um, about housing costs being a huge part of people's uh, pricing. I, I'll tell you right now, I am raising rents. I have this interesting philosophy about rents. I am always the cheapest rent for the nicest house. doesn't mean my house is the nicest out there, but it's the nicest for that rent. So when you have market rents, I'm, I rent for $50 to $100 less than the overall market. That's just my philosophy. But I want to keep people in for five years. So I have this whole interesting rental philosophy. But what I will say is I am raising rents like crazy right now. And um, my homeowners are looking around, I'm saying like, or my renters, I say, if you can find something better, tell me, because I want to be 50 to $100 cheaper than anything out there, because I want to keep you forever. Um, but I've raised rents like $400, $500 a month on some people, which is atrocious. It's so expensive. Yeah. But I say, go find something cheaper that's in this condition. And if you can, I'll more than match it. I'll be 50 to $100 less than what they can do. Yeah. And they can't find that. And so they're having to pay market rates. They're paying less than market rates. And they love me because I charge less than market rates for, for a better quality home than anywhere else. But it really sucks if you get your rent raised $500 a month because yeah. the market dictates that. And I'm, I'm with you taking control of the rents and the prices and those things, I think, is a huge advantage. And one of the reasons why everybody should be a homeowner at some point in their lifetime. Yeah, yeah when they're ready. Because as we both talked about, your mishap is makes me feel a bit better about my sewage line. But, <laughs> you know, that was something that thankfully I had cash available so I could just pay for it. You know, it wasn't the way I wanted to spend money, you know, right before Christmas. But it was like... Yeah, I had a water line break to talk mishaps. I had a water line that broke that was on the city's property, not my property, that like crazy water line, like huge, that flooded my entire basement. Uh, this on Walden Hills was the property and the city did not cover any of it. And my homeowner's insurance wouldn't cover any of it because this, it was on the city line. It wasn't on our line, but the city said they weren't liable. So the city had an indemnification clause in their water that basically said, we're sorry, but we're not liable ever. It and I'm like, this, this cannot be real. This cannot be like a private yeah. commerce transaction would be liable for this. Like, yeah. how does the government get out of all liability when they're the ones that broke the freaking thing? And the funny thing is they broke it working on it. You know what I mean? I'm like, how much neglect can we talk about here? Yeah, the government. Yeah, mine is a similar situation with the sewage line. It ended up, you know, I feel like being a business owner and entrepreneur, sometimes it, your best business move is just to chalk it up to this was a learning experience an expensive one and I'm not going to waste my time suing the city even though I think they were at fault I totally agree be just because they have they can we could be in litigation for the rest of our lives oh yeah attorney's cost alone would eat up what you end up spending if you yeah. really wanted to get into it but it's frustrating but those are things and those are like Small those are life lessons right those yeah. are lessons that you learn and they're things you need to keep in consideration although this doesn't happen a lot I've probably I've I've owned or owned notes on probably 700 different houses, right? So um, when we talk about some of these problems, it usually doesn't happen. But when you own 700, you're going to deal with some of these problems. Yeah, you're going to run into some of them. So uh, another question I have for you is what, I feel like you're listening to your podcast, you believe more doing 100% in real estate. Do you, have, do you have an opinion on stock market versus real estate? It's kind yeah, of a I mean, loaded question. Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's, uh, I'll give you my personal philosophy and it's do what you know. Mm -hmm. um, and if you don't know something, learn it and get good at it. So I'm kind of the guy that's like, do what you know 
And if, if you're trying to decide if stocks for me is real estate for me, I don't know, figure out which one you think is for you and get all in on that. So if I was a stock guy, I'd be all in on stocks and then I'd own a house, maybe buy a rental property here and there, you know, but I wouldn't be as, as hardcore real estate. I'm a real estate guy. So that's what I know. So that's what I do. Do I own some stocks of my net worth? Probably less than 1% of my net worth is in stocks. Um, so that's, that's just the way I like it. That's the way I do things. Um, I can make better returns outside of the stock market, more consistent, but I'm, I'm a real estate professional, you know, I am an no expert. Yeah. What's that? Yeah, I'm an you're expert. a real estate expert. So, yeah. so that makes, that makes total sense. And, and, and that's what makes me feel good. Um, I always get jealous when my buddies are dabbling in some things and make some enormous returns. But I'm like, it's kind of like crypto, you know, they made a whole, a whole bunch of money in crypto and then this week they lost it all. And they're yeah. like, well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Usually the good stuff is boring. So learning the real estate market and putting the time and effort to it is not the exciting aspect of it, but becoming an expert in something always pays dividends, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I like to always wrap things up with asking about a personal uh, finance book or in your case, a real estate book. So do you have a favorite go-to book? Yeah, so I've actually written a couple of books um, on real estate. So I won't bore you with those, but um, I definitely recommend, I've got one, How to Get More Money You Can Never Handle, A Real Estate Investor's Guide to Funding Deals. So that's one of mine um, that I really like. But um, as far as the book that really made big changes in my life is going to be the Rich Dad Poor Dad book, the Robert Kiyosaki. I have been um, waiting for a guest to pick that because that's my favorite. Are you serious? And nobody no, I, on my no podcast, everybody says that book. They're like Rich Dad Poor Dad. I love the Rich Dad Poor Dad. It's on my 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 two sons. I have a nine year old and eleven year old, and okay. it's on their quote unquote required reading, which basically means dad pays you to read it and do a book report. And by the way, if you do the book report in front of other people, I bring in other entrepreneurs to ask you questions, you get paid more money. So it's like, do you want to do this in front of mom and dad? Or do you want me to bring in a couple of people to ask you questions? Um, and so they get paid to read those types of books. Same with like Richest Man in Babylon. Um, those are the types of books that I think change it. But from a, from a finance, it's not as much real estate, but I think Richest Man in Babylon and uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad are amazing books to help change the mindset of things and get you going in the right direction. I mean, Richest Man in Babylon talks a lot about expertise. It talks a lot, has some budgeting principles in there that are get, getting taught. The, the Rich Dad Poor Dad unlocks this whole idea of like cash flow is everything yep. and how to, how to go and acquire cash flow. And I'd say, you know, for cash flow and um, there's a million ways to skin that cat. There's a lot of ways to skin that cat. I also own businesses. I, I probably didn't talk about that, but I own other businesses as well um, that derive some cash flow. And so I've got investments in some, you know, some other companies and some joint ventures and some other bigger real estate type deals. And so that kind of diversifies me out. But those two books, I would say, are, are at the top of my list. Perfect. Well, this was great. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. And we'll be sure to link your books as well. Awesome. Um, that'd be great. Yeah. We'll link your books and we'll link to your podcast. And so for all of our lovely listeners, thank you for tuning in and you can find out our most up-to-date information on Instagram at future rich podcast. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.